What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Today's episode is brought to you by one of our amazing sponsors, stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with stamps.com. For a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in SMART. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. I'm John Rojas. Today we're going to get into inequality, inequality in the financial sense. Today we're talking to Branko Milanovic. He is a leading scholar on income inequality who joined the Graduate Center as visiting presidential professor in the LIS Center. Before coming to the LIS Center, he was lead economist in the World Bank's research department. He recently wrote a book called The Haves and the Have-Nots, A Brief and Idiosyncratic History of Global Inequality. Wow, that is a mouthful of subtitle. Yeah, idiosyncratic. That's such a hard word. It came out on the first time. I I was kind of amazed when (laughs) you said that. That's what 150 podcast episodes will do for you. Evidently. Uh, But this was great. I mean, because, look, we all kind of know about financial inequality, but I don't think we necessarily dive in and we don't look at it. He kind of breaks it out, right? You have the financial inequality within a country. Then you have amongst countries and then you have global. It's a pretty interesting way of looking at it. And then having the lead economist or former lead economist of the World Bank doesn't hurt. It is pretty crazy when you look at it. Everybody talks about inequality especially with income in America. But then when you compare it on a global scale, I mean, they're just, it's comparing apples to oranges. So we're going to turn it over here to Bronco. Uh, Smartpeoplepodcast.com is the website. 
There's always things we ask you to do. I'd say biggest thing on my end is if you signed up for the newsletter, that'd be fantastic. We want to keep in touch with you, let you know what's going on, what we've learned, what we've found. No sales, no bad stuff, no spam. Yeah, it's the best and easiest way for us to stay in touch with you guys. Uh, second best way would definitely be Twitter. Reach out to us at Smart People Pod. Here is Bronco Milanovic. Again, thanks so much for being on the show. Really excited to talk to you. The topic of income inequality is something that I don't know if it's just getting more coverage now or because it's getting so out of control, people are starting to talk about it. But it's a hot topic and it's something that's pretty scary. But, you know, it's good actually that you mentioned these two possible reasons. Is it really out of control now or just, uh, you know, people are talking too much? (laughs) <laughs> I think it's actually both because, you know, income inequality in the U.S. has been going up since around like early 1980s. So it has been going up for 30 years and more. And people who have worked on income inequality, they knew that all along. You know, it, it went up, it started under the Reagan years, really accelerated under Clinton and so on. But it was not very much in people's perception First, because the economics was dominated by the you know people who essentially thought, well, don't rock the boat. Income distribution doesn't matter. The only thing which matters is growth. So you know, just leave us in peace. And then, likewise, the media and everybody else was really totally uninterested in that because they thought, you know, again, it's not a big story. Uh, we don't care. You know, things are getting better. And finally, I think the people themselves, actually, those who we discover now had no real growth in incomes or wages. They were not that much concerned because they were able, because of the financial liberalization, to borrow heavily. So, you know, they thought actually that would keep on going like this. And finally, the politicians essentially said, well, you guys, maybe you think you're not doing that well, but you seem to be buying more and more stuff. You know, you go and have all these, you know, fancy goods. And... uh, they also did not want to point out to them that eventually things have, will have to be paid back. So everybody seems to be happy until the crisis hit. Yeah, and that's the tough part. And it's interesting when you talk about the, the borrowing, because what that leads me to believe, I'm wondering what your research shows, if people have the ability to consume more, will they continue to do so regardless of consequences? Well, you know, my research does not deal with that uh, exactly. So I can just talk about this as a, you know, somebody who has worked on inequality. Sure. But, you know, I don't know. I never worked on, like, psychology of people and why people, you know, consume and whether they would consume regardless of consequences. Obviously, you can have some impulsive consumption. There are studies that show even that, you know, consumption of drugs and other things is not really totally impulsive, but it's to some extent rational as well. Um, you know, I, I really, it's very difficult to say, but I really think that people did not fully understand or uh, that's a maybe difficulty of, of people in general, you know, of all of us, to tell about the future or maybe to have, we might have had very optimistic views of the future. What I want to say is the following. Let's suppose that suddenly you have a chance to have your new home or maybe to have a car that you always wanted to have. And then you have an opportunity to borrow. 
your income really should not justify your borrowing debt. You know that actually with the current income, you're not going to be able to repay. But then maybe that's where this kind of a hiding hand comes in, or maybe your optimistic view of the future. You say, well, it's true, maybe I can do it now, but maybe I'll get a better job, maybe I will be luckier, maybe I will meet somebody, mm -hmm. something will happen, and I really would like to have this car right now. So it's very hard to reject that proposition when it's really put in front of you like that. Uh, that's a good hypothetical, actually. It, it does kind of bring just the idea into real life or how it might work. So on this topic of income inequality, I know in your book, which is the haves and the have-nots, you kind of break it down into three different areas, which are extremely interesting because from a ethnocentric view or something, I, I kind of always look at it as the inequality in America. But you also talk about inequality amongst nations and then global inequality. So let's kind of start with in America or within a country, income inequality and what that means for that specific nation. Yes, I, I think it's actually a good way to start because we all have a, a general, uh, how should I say, tendency first to think about inequality within our own countries. I mean, and to a large extent, it makes full sense because we also think about, you know, the governments in own countries. We think of political systems which are different. Let's suppose Canadian is different from the American and so on or UK is different from, from the United States. So inequality, too, is to a large extent determined by the political institutions, the political system, tax policies, you know, inherited uh, distribution of maybe capital, labor, education system that exists within a country. So when you put all of that together, obviously that, bring, that actually gives you something which would be national inequality. And that was the national inequality that we talked about like a couple of minutes ago when we said how much inequality in the U.S. has been rising in the last 30 years and the why people did not really pay that much attention about it. Uh, but when we talk about these national inequalities, very simply to like look at a couple of other cases, inequality in the United Kingdom, in the Great Britain actually, has not been that much different from inequality in the United States. It is at the lower level, but it has also increased again, basically with the Thatcher regular revolutions uh, since the early 1980s. So it's very similar evolution. Then you have another country which is very different from the United States, which is, you know, much poorer, started essentially as a communist country like China. And there you had also a tremendous increase in inequality, so much so that actually China now has overtaken the U.S. as being more unequal than the United States. So these are really the inequalities that we kind of think about. But uh, you can also, and that's basically what my work is, you can also think of inequality uh, in at least two other ways, and I will just briefly explain them, and then we can discuss them later. The first one, inequality between countries, which will be essentially inequality between mean incomes of the countries. You know, that's the inequality between U.S. and Mexico, for example, or U.S. and Honduras, or, you know, Spain and Morocco, that kind of inequality. And then you can think of global inequality, which would be a combination of the, these two inequalities that we mentioned, which is, first, inequality within nations, plus you add to that inequalities between nations, and then you get a kind of inequality between all individuals in the world. And that's really what I'm working on mostly. 
I'd like to focus in on that one because, again, it's something that we see very often. I mean, for example, when a natural disaster hits and we see the devastation that happens, say, in a country that doesn't have the ability to rebuild itself. I think those type of events bring to the forefront how we can't believe we sit here with our and I say we and I guess I think of it in my own sense, but cars or houses or whatever, we don't go without a lot. How have we gotten to this point? And then how do we get past it of this enormous inequality gap? You know, the, the inequality gap is huge, as, as you mentioned. Uh, I mean, when you brought up, for example, the issue of disasters, think of the when this horrible earthquake hit Haiti. And now Haiti is maybe an extreme case, but that's a country, it's actually the second uh, independent country in the Western Hemisphere after the United States. And uh, so it was a self-government country for 200 years. And it really, rather than growing, becoming richer, it actually has stayed at the same level of decline. So it's an extremely poor country. Uh, there was some reaction from the world, but as we know now, it was half-hearted, it was inefficient. And Haiti has some of the dysfunctional political system, low education, like huge problems there. I mean, an enormous gap in income levels. And of course, you know, things get forgotten and not too many people think of Haiti today. But the gaps really have not diminished. So uh, the gaps between the top richest countries and the poorest countries today are actually much greater than they have ever been in history, simply because rich countries are very, very rich and poor countries are at the level where most of the world was in 18th or 19th century. So the gap is, is that large. Now, this is a little bit unfair because I compare, in this case, only the very top to the very bottom. But if you compare really all the countries together, then the situation is a little bit different, and particularly if you include, you know, uh, make the adjustment for the size of the countries, because China and India in particular have been growing very fast. And in that sense, they have been catching up with the rich world, although they're still quite far behind, but at least they are actually improving their own position. And that is actually a big force for reducing global inequality. So the growth rates of China and India, because they are so poor to start with, and they're growing so fast, are a big, big equalizing force. What are the drivers of minimizing the income inequality gap? You know, the drivers are actually the two that I mentioned before, because it's a little bit like these are the two components of global inequality. The first one is the gaps between nations. So if these gaps, and particularly the gaps between very big nations, because it's still the case that, you know, it does not matter equally if China is getting rich or if uh, a very small country like Chad is getting rich. Simply, China has 1.2 billion people and, and Chad has, I don't know, probably 4 million people. And so that's the se first force. Actually, if you have what economists call convergence, meaning higher income growth of poor countries than rich countries, then obviously differences will diminish between people also, not only between countries, but also between people. And the second force is actually greater equality within each individual nation. So that's why, to some extent, inequality in the U.S. actually contributes to inequality in the world. In other words, if the U.S. or China were more equal, 
also the world would be more equal. That's definitely an interesting concept because one of the things I was going to ask, when I think of somebody in Africa who has to walk 20 miles round trip to get fresh water, and I think about that inequality, obviously from a humanitarian level that it disgusts me, but I'd like to hear from your statistical analysis or, or the research you've done why else does this inequality gap matter? Why should somebody, say a rich CEO in New York City or whoever it might be, be concerned about the global inequality? You know, a rich CEO in New York, for example, may be concerned because if there is no reduction in global inequality and no formation of some you know, reasonably large uh, uh, global middle class, you know, the number of people to whom he's going to sell his products is going to not grow. For the same reason that he may be interested in having a middle class in the U.S. so that he can sell, or she can sell the products, he or she may be also interested in having a middle class and people with reasonably good incomes in Africa or in Asia. So there is a little bit of a self-interest. Now, obviously, that self-interest is, there is a big you know, gap between that type of self-interest and doing something about that. Because you can always say, well, somebody else might do that. Why, why should I use my money or, or time? Uh, but there are two other reasons I think that this global inequality might matter. The first one is that you mentioned there is a little bit of an ethical reason. Is that uh, uh, essentially you can actually argue that the incomes of people who live in rich countries are really similar to having a kind of a citizenship rent. It's essentially you're born and one is born in a a rich country, from the global perspective, is not very different from being born to rich parents. And for the same reason that somebody does not really sort of, through his own effort, deserve, actually, in that sense, quote-unquote, to be born to rich parents, he doesn't deserve either to be born in a rich country per se, actually. It's not a result of his effort or luck. I mean, it's a result of his luck, you know, original luck. Uh, so that would be the second reason. It's really an ethical reason. And the third reason I would say is uh, linked to migration. In other words, these large gaps between the countries are certainly something which is a very strong force for migration because many people who are from poorer countries really want to go to richer countries because their income would be increased by a factor of two or five or even ten. Uh, and to the extent that there are really limits or there are political issues with migration, obviously it would be better if income gaps between the countries were less. That makes so much sense. And the first thing that you brought up about having a larger middle class to be able to purchase more goods seems like such common sense. Why do you think it is that the fiscal policies in the U.S. or U.K. or China really aren't built around that. I mean, we've seen, especially here, just the erosion of the middle class. You would figure that policies would be built around building up the middle class. Have you done any research into why this like lack of concern for the middle class has appeared? No, I have not done uh, research myself. I've actually simply uh, read what other people have said for example, Josh um, uh, Hackler wrote about the uh, you know winner take all, winner take all politics, um, and I have done calculations which are simply showing the erosion of the middle class in the U.S. Mm-hmm. You know, part of that calculation and of that fact can be seen in this famous uh, 
uh, graphs that were done by Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saez, which show the rising share of the top 1% in the U.S. Because what the rising share of the top 1% means is the declining share of the middle. I mean, one cannot go without the other. So that is actually indicating the declining share of the middle. You can have other calculations. For example, I've done one which looks at the, this is a standard definition of the middle class. You just take people who are 25% above and below the median. The median is actually the income of the, of the 50th percentile in the U.S. So it's actually the, the person who is just in the middle. So you take people you know, around that middle, and then you see that in the last 25 years, the number of people in that middle who were about one-third of the population in that sort of uh, range around the middle, it has now gone to about 27%. And in terms of the purchasing power, it has gone down from almost one-third to only 21%. So clearly, these people represent less and less uh, uh, important segment for the you know, American producers because there are fewer of them and they have relatively less money. And now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support Smart People Podcast. Going to the post office is like having an AOL email account. It's time for an upgrade. Now you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can now do right from your desk with Stamps.com. I mean anything. You can print stamps, envelopes, and shipping labels. And unlike the post office, you don't have to wait in line at Stamps.com. Save time. Print postage online. You know, John and I are always sending out books that we get from guests. We're trying to hook you guys up with things. And we use stamps.com so we don't have to go to the post office anymore. Saves us a ton of time. It's simple, too. They send you a free scale. You plug it into your computer, weigh whatever package or envelope you have, print out the shipping, slap it on the box, leave it for your mailman. Right now, use our promo code SMART for a special offer. You get a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a free digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in SMART. That's Stamps.com. Enter SMART. Hey, guys. Help Smart People Podcast stay free to download by completing this short anonymous survey. It will take no more than five minutes. Your answers will help match our show with advertisers that best fit the sensibilities of our podcast and its listeners like you. Listeners who complete the survey will be entered into an ongoing monthly raffle to win a $100 Amazon gift card. We promise not to share or sell your email address, and we won't send you email unless you win. Please go to www.podsurvey.com smart. That's www.podsurvey.com slash smart to take our survey and get a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Thanks a lot. Is that, and again, I can really only speak to in America because I, you know, live here and read the things more often, but is the growing income gap, is it primarily due to the government? I mean, is it due to lower taxes, tax loopholes, things like that? What have you found? You know, that's one of the, actually, there are three possibilities. And then you can really classify people. And I will only at the end say what I think is actually the likelihood, which one is maybe more relevant. But you can really classify people into three different groups, depending on what they believe 
was the major force behind the rise in inequality in the U.S. and in the rich world in general. So first you have people who believe that it was mostly due to the technological change. So this is something which is outside of the control of government or any individual per se. If you have greater IT technology, robotics, all very complex machinery, that would mean that essentially people with very high skills, other you know, engineers, people who have gone to graduate school and others, would be able to actually work with that machinery. And actually, when I say machinery, it's also the computers and all the things which go. You know, let's suppose you take uh, you know architectural design. You actually have to have people who have studied that in school, who have actually gone through four years of school. Um, so that would actually help people with higher skills, and it would also at the same time reduce demand for people with low skills, because many of these new technologies would replace people with lower skills because you don't need them, you know, the new technology is going to do the job for you. So that would really increase gaps in wages between the high-skilled people and low-skilled people. And that was the first sort of strand of thought or the first explanation which puts really the onus or the emphasis on technological change. And if you do that, then as I said before, there is nothing to blame the government for because it's not decreed by the government that there should be technological change of this particular nature. And the, the best thing that you can do, you can actually try to improve education systems so you have more skilled people. But you know, it's something which is beyond the control of individuals. Now, the second uh, sort of way of thinking is people who essentially say it was because of globalization and openness. And there the story is essentially U.S. opens up, actually U.S. trades now much more than 30 years ago. China is now also obviously open. It produces the goods that basically displaced American middle class worker or actually, you know, maybe less educated worker because Americans are paid much more than the Chinese. And then you have this hollowing out of the middle. And then also the demand for American high-tech goods, which can be only produced in America with, of course, very high-skilled labor. That demand goes up, and the wage gap increases. Unemployment for the low-skilled people goes up, and inequality is up. And finally, the third explanation is one that you actually alluded to, is the explanation that it was some institutional change as reflected in lower tax rates, uh, tax breaks for, for the rich, uh, lower taxation of inheritance, lower taxation of capital income. So that was really the government that was behind the increase in inequality. So there will be really basically three theories. And um, just to conclude, the first one, there is not much you can do, maybe very little you can do about, you know, offsetting the effect of technological change. The second one, you can do something but really, it's unlikely. You're not going to withdraw from globalization. And the third one, you really can do something because it was really man-made, as it were. But we don't know which one is right. <laughs> well, you know, the, uh, to some extent, the change is over-explained because, you know, we don't have in economics an ability to, you know, maybe put these three theories together and tell you, like, okay, we have got, like, 35 for the first one, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, 30 for the second, and 30 for the last. So it's really difficult to tell. And I think very often they went together. You know, sure. the openness was favored by a group of people. This group of people were generally rich. These rich people then essentially lobbied for legislation that was good for them. So, you know, you have lots of 
things going simultaneously there. So I think actually all three of them are to some extent right, which, you know, I cannot put the numbers, but I would say that clearly it does lead people to argue that there is some room for government action because that third element, institutional element, was certainly also helping increase inequality. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I know you were formerly the lead economist in the World Bank's research department. And I wonder, in doing that, because that's a title way above my pay grade and any one I'll ever have, so I don't know exactly what you did there, but do you look at cronyism in politics? Do you look at how the rich keep getting richer by only passing laws and legislation that benefits them? I'm not, I don't want to make them, you know, in quotes, seem terrible. But I'm wondering from all of your research, the positions you've held, what your take on it is. Well, you know, it was not a topic which was studied until about 10 years ago. Uh, There are many reasons here because, you know, the World Bank is, first of all, an international institution. So it's really institution of governments. So it was very difficult that you would have a topic which basically tries to, uh, you know, (laughs) judge governments and the way that they behave and the way that actually pass legislation. But it, it has changed. I think the first change came with the uh, fall of communism because uh, there was no kind of a counterpart anymore and also counterpart in the sense of ideological counterpart. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, it was really now open to maybe question the, question, the, the corruption. For example, you could not question corruption in Congo, in former Zaire, so long as it was a very large bulwark against communism in Africa. But once there is no communism, then obviously you can question, you know, corruption in Zaire. So it became a topic. Then, of course, uh, with transition, uh, corruption in Eastern Europe became really a big deal. So that really added to this topic. So the topic really, and then the cronyism with the, with the Asian crisis also, uh, 1998, became a bigger topic. So in the last 15 years, I think the World Bank has studied that. But, you know, one has to be careful. One cannot really go uh, into sort of individual cases. That can be done only by independent researchers or by universities and so on, you know. Uh, You cannot expect the international organization to figure out how Carlos Slim became rich, you know. Sure. But uh, an individual researcher can do that. He can actually go and sort of, you know, study how he started, how he got the licenses from the government. Did he pay people to do that or not? Do you think this is something that's going to self-correct, or do you think it is on the hands of U.S. policymakers, U.K., China, and working as a global unit? Or, like I said at the beginning of that, do you think that this is something that will just self-correct over time? Well, you know, I have a hard time sort of seeing it self-correcting within the time over which I can actually make some prognostications or prognosis, like within five years, you know. Uh, and I have a hard time seeing this self-correction because the system that is put in place is a system which really benefits people who are, I mean, institutionally and in terms of legislation, benefits the people who are rich. Now, they are aware now that inequality is a big topic and it's not really very pleasant that they're all the time being called, like, you know, top 1% and all that. <laughs> but, you know, they are not willing... Which I can understand that a whole life there was made making more and more money. So they are not willing now to say, well, we are now going to create different think tanks from the ones that we created 20 years ago. 
now to be like left-wing think tanks and you know doing policy papers in favor of redistribution. It just uh, does not strike me as likely. In the U.S., doesn't strike me likely as likely in China that people who have made billions, often through government corruption, <clears throat> are now going to say, we are not going to do that anymore. So I don't see that exactly, you know, happening anytime soon. Uh, but, you know, for the period after that, it's very difficult to make, you know, uh, estimates or to make forecasts, so, so we don't know. I think that basically these people who meet in Davos and elsewhere and, you know, do a sort of lip service to inequality and all of that, really believe, and maybe they can turn out to be right, but really believe, well, this is really big noise now, everybody talks about that, but once the economy grows back, we have a growth rate of 3% per year, unemployment declining, everybody will forget, nothing will happen, we'll be rich and we'll be even richer and everybody will be happy. So I think this is what they intimately believe. So really, we don't need to rock the boat right now. I know you talk about Marxism in your book, and we've mentioned communism. I'm wondering, have you found that there is a better, I mean... A better ism that works? A better ism. I mean, capitalism is the, the best form of government that doesn't work or something, whatever that quote is. But you look at countries in the U.K., or maybe somebody like, um, I don't know, in Ireland, Sweden, and uh, Norway, with the, the higher tax rates that are trying to create that larger middle, middle class, less of an income gap. Is that a solution? Is that a good thing? Or should we be saying, look, it's, it's a doggy dog world. You know, if you want to make money, you got to try harder and you got to, you know, make your way up from the bottom. Yeah, I'm going to disappoint a little bit because I'm not really great on uh, sort of giving uh, solutions. <laughs> uh, I'm better actually figuring out the problem <laughs> and sort of saying that it's kind of hard to fix them. But, uh, you know, first, capitalism is the only game in town. I mean, there is no other system. To some extent, I think our dissatisfaction stems from that, too, because suddenly, at least my generation or, you know, people who have actually been around an alternative system for a while, they are got used to actually having alternative systems. And I don't mean only in this sort of uh, contrast between socialism and capitalism, but even when you go back like to 1970s, you still had all the way from the left, obviously you had communist regimes, but then you had state dirigist regimes like Turkey and Brazil. You know, then you had uh, Korea and Japan, which had much greater role of the state and sort of called Asian capitalism. Then you had social democracy in Western Europe. Then you had the United States, which was always more liberal, although, you know, more social democratic than, than today. And then you had Hong Kong at the very end. But now when you look at the world, you don't have anything like this anymore because all the countries more or less have the same system. There is a little bit of a difference. You know, Sweden has a higher taxation rate than the U.S. But, you know, these differences compared to the differences in the systems which existed 30 or 40 years ago are just really sort of, they pale in comparison. So we are actually at the loss for the alternatives. We actually have basically one system with slight modifications here and there. And even these modifications or differences are really, uh, you know, getting uh, smaller. I mean, Sweden, for example, that many people, you know, hail as a great example of social welfare and uh, social democracy, has generally been really dismantling this, not largely, but, you know, somewhat dismantling the system also 
over the last 30 years. Inequality went up. Sweden is the most unequal country in Europe in terms of the billionaires as their share of GDP. So, you know, things are, you know, have changed elsewhere too. So we are really a little bit at the loss uh, for the alternative. That was a really great explanation. I mean, because, just because it goes to show even how little I know on all these subjects in, in terms of, you were saying, Sweden, you know, percentage of billionaires and GDP. I think maybe a lot of the income inequality is due to lack of understanding behind the problem in the first place. Well, it could be. And of course, there is also the part, I mean, to go back to these three explanations, there is like part of each of them, you know. Uh, technological progress has historically, I mean, you go back to the, uh, you know, industrial revolution in Britain, technological progress was really displacing workers because that's its nature of technological progress is to actually use a machine that is cheaper than a worker. And, you know, we now can actually even think in terms of what will happen with robotics hmm. and with more and more robots replacing humans. So to some extent it's good because we should have more free time to, hmm. uh, you know, enjoy, to have leisure. But then on the other hand, if capital is controlled by a small group of people, then the entire income in that sense would go to the capital owners and nothing to labor. So, you know, this is the technological progress element there. Then there is also the element which I mentioned before, also of globalization. And then finally, there is element of policies. And there clearly there are differences. They are not as big, nearly as big, as I said, as they were 30, 40 years ago. But still, Germany had a reasonably active and strong welfare state. Still, it remains and actually that cushion to a large extent increase in inequality. It didn't sort of totally eradicate it, but it was much less than in UK or the United States. So, you know, there are still some varieties, which does not mean that, you know, US can can change and maybe introduce higher tax rates or in, improve transfers and spend more on infrastructure. But I was just going to point out that really the diversity which existed in these social arrangements in 1970 or even 1980 is now much less. I just had one last question for you, and you might say, what the heck, this, isn't, this doesn't have anything to do with me. But uh, I was wondering if you had recently had any thoughts on especially income inequality, inequality in general, in North Korea, with all the things that recently came out as to, I mean, they have, and, and it's, maybe it's just because it's in the news right now, but they, they run the gamut of a dictator that is just hoarding all of the resources so much so that large quantities of people are even starving. Is that income inequality to its exponent degree? Yes, I would say that's probably, I really haven't thought of that before, but when you ask me now, I think it's probably must be the most unequal country in the history, at least recent history, maybe. You know, Equatorial Guinea comes close because basically one person has a huge chunk of income. You know, the, the, the average income of Equatorial Guinea is very high because of oil, but like one family has the entire income. Wow. Uh, but North Korea, of course, combines... It's really a sort of an extreme case. It's, it's a weird case, but, you know, it combines two features which are to the extreme degree. It's a, a huge concentration of wealth in basically hands of one man to whom he distributes then, you know, few goodies around, and huge concentration of political power. So this is really, um, I mean, an extreme case of inequality politically, 
and um, uh, you know, in terms of income or wealth or anything else. Uh, there, there is ne never really, there has never been anything, I mean, even similar to this that I can think of in the last, you know, 100 or 150 years. You cannot even compare it to, you know, Zaire, you can compare it to, to Stalin's Russia. It's just, it's just like in a, in a category of its own. It's, it's almost bizarre. It's almost kind of unbelievable. Wow. Do you think we're going to see more situations like we've seen with the Ukraine and Venezuela where the people just had enough and are trying to take their countries back? I mean, I saw pictures of the former president in Ukraine with his house and just how nice he was living compared to everybody else in the Ukraine. And they just they had enough and they revolted against the country. Do you think that's going to happen more across the globe? Well, it seems like in the recent years it has been happening. If you look, uh, of course, a couple of years back, you know, with Tunisia, then Egypt, where it happened twice. First, they took mm -hmm. out one guy, but then they took down the second guy in order to bring back the first guy, the first. <laughs> you know. Uh, so I think, and then, of course, as you mentioned today, Venezuela, then we had Turkey, then we had Thailand, then we have Ukraine today. So it seems that this... Uh, People power, quote unquote, which is not always that I'm in a huge sort of supporter because very often it is also overthrowing elected governments, you know. Mm. So it's, it's a very, you know, it's a very kind of knife edge situation. Uh, but um, I think it probably will, will become more important with a crisis and probably with the spread of the media and the ability of people to just sort of show in one place when they are fed up. So in that sense, I do, I do believe, although there are some doubts about that, but I do believe that the media do play an important role. It's simply that you can learn much more. You know, for example, the, 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 the Tunisia uh, demonstrations, after this guy immolated himself, started partly because of the revelations that were made by WikiLeaks about the amounts of money that the president, Ben Nali, was sort of stealing or wasting or using, you know. So that was one of the triggers of the revolution. So I think in that sense, the social media play a, good, a big role. Yeah, I guess everything's out there in the open. Well, Bronco, I, I really appreciate you being on the show. I mean, your book, The Haves and the Have-Nots, is fantastic. That's why, you know, The Globalist selected as one of the number one books of 2011. And I think you're one of the only books I've ever seen on Amazon that has a full five-star rating. So just goes well, to show. Well, maybe it doesn't have enough people rating it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So we'll get more people. But want to say thanks. It's a great book. Is there anywhere else that you're writing or places that, you know, listeners who are really interested in this income inequality can? And follow up and learn more about it? You know, I mean, not really, because I've been writing for like Harvard Business Review and then The Globalist and the Yale Global Online, but I don't have one, one single web or a blog. But, um, but anyway, so unfortunately, I, the answer is no. I, I do write on sort of different, I'm somewhat of a nomad, you know, I write on one blog or the other blog. But I wish, actually, I would have my own um, uh, kind of a blog column, but I don't have one yet. Yeah, you should consider it. I mean, if you're writing in all these well-respected places, it believe me, it would drive plenty of traffic. And you say it'd be starting from scratch, but in no time, you'd be, you'd be amazed, I think, at how many people would be willing to seek out somebody of, of your stature. So, well, thank you again so much. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll be recommending your book. It's fantastic. 
Thanks a lot, guys. Thank right. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Bronco Milanovic. Again, his recent book, The Haves and the Have-Nots, is fantastic. Check it out. And if you want to tweet Bronco, you can tweet him at Bronco Milan, B-R-A-N-K-O-M-I-L-A-N. Tweet him. Tweet us. Let's get in a conversation. He's constantly having conversations with people on Twitter, talking about inequality and just the world economics. It's really interesting to follow him. So tell him hi. Tell him you heard about him on Smart People Podcast. That would definitely help us out. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to let you go early on this one. Hope you enjoyed it. Catch us next week on Smart People Podcast. Podcast.